0: Our text this morning is Romans chapter 9. And in this text, Paul deals with the subject of the justice of God and asks the question uh, whether or not God is just. Any question of God's justice in this passage stems from the display of of his sovereignty, both in electing grace and in the judgment of the unbelieving. When Paul says, as he does say, quoting God from Exodus, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion, the reason is to support God's decision to love Jacob and hate Esau. And that, before the birth of these twin boys, with no consideration as to their future deeds, foreseen or otherwise, for Paul assures us that God's decision to love Jacob and hate Esau, verse 11, was before birth, their birth, and secondly, before they had done anything, good or bad. So he's... he's, Prejudicing the statement by saying God's decision was made before these boys were even birthed and before they had opportunity to behave in any kind of way, be it good or bad. So he's dealing with timing here, the timing of God's choice. And he places the timing of the event, God's choice at the center of this discussion to teach, verse 11, God's purpose in election might stand not by works, be they Jacob's or Esau's, but by him who calls, who of course is God himself. In verse 14, he asks the question that he knows is on everyone's mind, is God unjust? God made the decision before the guys did anything good or bad, is that just? He's making the point for God's sovereignty. You see, whenever God acts unilaterally and when He acts without asking our permission, or when he acts acts contrary to our assumptions and our opinions, man feels justified, even compelled to question God's actions and in particular to accuse God of failing to act morally and upright as he deals with mankind. I wish this were only a characteristic of the pagan community because we could then say that such questioning of God was part and parcel of their sin of rebellion and opposition to the holy will of God, but alas, it is not simply unbelievers who question God in this way. The professing Christian community also feels no compulsion to remain silent in these matters, believing as they do that God must act in accordance with their understanding of God rather than seeing that such understanding may be jaded by wrong assumptions, by erroneous teaching, and even at the heart of the matter, some resident pride that we know best in matters of right and wrong. We know best in matters of what's just and what's fair. And there is no end to man's arrogance, and God's people seem to struggle with this as much as anyone in the world. We should know better, but do we? We should do better, but are we? That's what we want to talk about this morning as we look at the subject, firstly noted there in your bulletin outline, justice versus fairness. You know, firstly, that justice has to do with doing what is right what is right. In Romans 3, Paul demonstrates that the faithlessness, faithlessness of men does not f- nullify the faithfulness of God, saying, "Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge." Romans 3 verse 4. Justice is about being true and right when judgment is passed. Now there's some Old Testament verbiage that helps us get a grasp of what the Bible means by justice. There's some negatives that we find in the Old Testament. Let me read some of them for you. This is from Exodus 23. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. Do not show favoritism to a poor man in his lawsuit. You see how, he's, how justice is being defined here. You don't just go with the crowd. And the guy's poor, so you don't say, well, you know, give him a break. No, you're having to do with truth. He goes on. Do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Have nothing to do with a false charge. And do not put an innocent or honest person to death. For I will not acquit the guilty. If you do that, you're guilty. Exodus 23 verses 2 through 7. He's saying in this text, if the majority is in the wrong and you side with them, justice has been perverted. If you show favoritism, that is unjust. If you execute an honest man, that is unjust. He's really laying it heavy on his people. Again, Deuteronomy 16 verse 19. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Yeah, well, if I'm getting paid to say something different, is justice going to be meted out? Absalom's scheme to undercut David's authority and usurp his throne consisted of this deceptive move. Now listen to what Absalom did and see if you think this is a definition of justice. He would get up early in the morning. This is Absalom now. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. And when you have references to the gates of cities, It's a reference to the place where the judicial body would meet and decide the cases for the day. The court's in session at the gate. That's kind of the thing that's being talked about there. He would stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate and whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? He would answer, well, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. That would mean the northern tribes, you see. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there's no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land. Then everyone who had a complaint or a case could come to me and I would see that he receives justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, this is the king's son, you realize. Whenever anyone would ever approach him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way towards all of the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice, and so he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. 2 Samuel 15, verses 2 through 6. Now, you can see what's going on here. No investigation into the right or wrong of a person's claim. Absalom simply told people what they wanted to hear. And he always decided in favor of the plaintiff, always he played the humble servant, always circumnavigating the authority of the king in order to steal the people's affections and loyalty for himself. He perverted justice for his own ends, and it worked. It worked. The gullible people said, Oh, I you know, I don't know if we're gonna get a fair shake from King David, but boy, his son. He, 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 if he were in power, we, we would get a fair shake. Now that's some of the negative things about, that we see in the Old Testament, that, uh, the perversion of justice, but there's some positive things too. For example, and you all know this account, when Solomon was faith with two women, each claiming to, that a live child was theirs, he ordered the child to be cut in half with each woman receiving their half. He's trying to find out who's the liar here and who's the teller of the truth. The real mother could not bear such a thing happening to her child, so she gladly relinquished her child to the accuser. Well, oh, let, her, let her have the child. If that's what you're going to do, let her take the child. And Solomon knew immediately who was lying and who was not. And so he awarded the child to the real mother. Now... Here's what the scripture says. When all Israel heard the verdict that the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. 1 Kings 3, verse 28. Yeah. What a wise king and the wisdom from God. King Artaxerxes, this is in the days of the exile approved of Ezra the priest because he knew the law of God. Listen to what he says. And you, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess, you appoint magistrates and judges to administer judges to all the people of the trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God, and you are to teach any who do not know them. Ezra 7, verse 25. So Ezra's... Uh, credentials stood out to King Artaxerxes and he's ruling over this whole Persian empire. He said, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm appointing you to pick the judges for the land. Because the judges you pick will know the laws of your God. Solomon writes in the proverb, Evil men do not understand justice. Let me read that again. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it fully. Proverbs 28, verse 5. Or again, Proverbs 29, verse 7. The righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. Well, just think about that politically and what our country is going through, and you will see... Proverbs being lived out in our day. Now, we learn from all of this that justice has to do with righteousness, with truth, with doing what is right in any given situation. It also has to do with goodness. You'll never get justice from wicked people because they know nothing about it. Justice only proceeds from those who know God's law and are not deterred from doing what is lawful by bribes or personal preferences or partiality or intimidation, etc. Because God is good to the point of perfection, because it is impossible for God to lie, for example, because the judge of all the earth does right, because God's decisions are not administered in partiality, we should never question the justice of God. But we do we do? Elihu, the only friend of Job with wise counsel said this. So listen to me, you men of understanding. And he's talking to the other friends. Far be it from God to do evil, from the almighty to do wrong. He repays a man for what he has done. He brings upon him what his conduct deserves. It is unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. Job 34, verse 10 through 12. He's saying it's impossible. It's part of God's character, his righteous character, that he must do only what is right. But Elihu was also responding to Job's lament, verse five of the same text. Job says, I am innocent, but God denies me justice. Although I am right, I am considered a liar. Although I am guiltless, his arrows inflict an incredib- incurable wound. What man is like Job who drinks scorn like water? For he says it profits a man nothing when he tries to please God. Job 34 verses 5 through 9. Now Job is in a blue slump here. And so he's accusing God of the unthinkable. The unthinkable is, as Elihu has said, that God would pervert justice. It just does not happen. But Job's thinking, you know, I I don't think I'm getting justice here. From God, Well, he's hurting like nobody's ever hurt, and so he's in the blue slump. Now, that's justice. Justice has to do with what is right, what's true. Secondly, fairness has to do with equality. We sometimes think that justice and fairness are one and the same, but they are not. We think of them as synonyms, but this is not so. You should know that even in the modern-day English translations, the words fair, fairness, do not appear frequently. Twelve times in the NIV. And when we subtract usages such as fair weather, or fair used in the sense of appearance, fair in appearance, the numbers reduced to six, that's half. Allowing for the same adjustment, the English Standard Version uses the terms but four times. So it's not a big popular word with the Bible authors. Neither of the translations uses the terms in reference to God, though they do use the term in text dealing with justice. For example, Solomon's prologue to the Proverbs expresses one reason for the Proverbs is this. For acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair. See, it is, same, it is in the text. Proverbs 1 verse 3, that's in the NIV. In chapter 2 verse 9, he says something very similar, referring to the benefits of God's wisdom. Then you will understand what is right and just and fair, every good path, Proverbs 2, verse 9. In the New Testament, Paul instructs masters, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven, Colossians 4, verse 1. Now the English Standard Version talks about fair weights when measuring grains. Deuteronomy 25, verse 15. NIV says, honest weights. Paul addressing the Corinthian church on giving says, in 2 Corinthians 8, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness, English Standard Version says. Now, in all but one of these texts, the King James Version uses the term equal, equity, or equality, which is the root meaning of both the Hebrew and the Greek terms. And that being so, if we refer to the Hebrew word, the Psalmist states of God, He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Psalm 98, verse 9. And by the way, all the modern translations agree with the King James at this point. NIV, ESV, they all have equity as the word. So far, so good. But what is meant when the psalmist assures us that God judges people with equity? I mean... We're trying to figure out which word's being used, but what does it mean? Does he mean that God disposes of cases that come before his tribunal with the same identical sentence or conclusion? Is that what he means by equity? Well, that cannot be, or we would have no such thing as right, wrong, true, false, heaven, hell. None of those things. Justice would be a mockery if everyone got the same identical sentence. Okay. Does he mean that God is not going to adjust the criteria, the standard for judgment, on a case-by-case basis? Now, I want you to think about this. If God changed the criteria, if he did that, then God would be no better than the wicked merchant who had one set of weights to measure out grain for his friends and another set of weights, see the standard, to measure grain out for a stranger. So surely the psalmist is saying that when people are judged by God, their criteria or standard is identical. No rigging the standard to determine outcomes. In this sense, the justice of God is most fair or equal. One of the scandals in our government right now is the National Security Council, the IRS, targeted conservative groups if they had the name Liberty, Patriot, Tea Party, or that in their name, so that the election was rigged. Different standard, you see. Liberal groups were not targeted, but the conservative groups were, so that the outcome would come out the way they wanted it to come out. Now, at this junction, it would do us well to consider yet one more term, and that's the term impartial. Impartial means not a respecter of persons, no favoritism. We have scriptures on this. For the Lord our God is a God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. Deuteronomy 10 verse 17. When King Jehoshaphat appointed judges in the land, his counsel to these appointees was this. Consider carefully what you do because you are not judging for man but for the Lord who is with you wherever you give a verdict. Now let the fear of the Lord be on you. Judge carefully for with the Lord our God there is no injustice or partiality or bribery. Second Chronicles 19 verse 6 and so. We're getting a feel now are we not for what is meant by justice and fairness. Peter, when he was invited to the house of the Roman centurion, Cornelius confessed, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. Acts 10, verse 34 and 35. Paul, in speaking of the judgment to come, says God will give to each person according to what he's done. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jews, then for the Gentiles, but there'll be glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jews, then for the Gentiles, for God does not show favoritism. Romans 2, verse 6 through 11. Wow. We need a dose of this kind of fairness, don't we? in our judicial system. Now, impartiality is not identical to equality, but it is closely related in these verses because God is saying that when He passes judgment on people, He does not have one standard for Jews and another for Gentiles, nor does He alter His decisions if someone pays Him a bribe to do so. And in this sense, God's refusal to show favoritism in his decisions is a matter of equity or fairness. He's refusing to take the bribe. He's refusing to tamper with the criteria of judgment. Now that brings us We're moving logically here, hopefully. That brings us to justice versus mercy. The first point in that is that election, God's election or choice in ages past, before the foundations of the world, is a matter of mercy. Mercy. For example, when we read in Romans 9, verse 13, Jacob I loved but Esau I hated. It is clear that a decision has been made by God that is not equal. Follow me now? It's not equal. God is dealing with Jacob in a way that is is not identical to how he deals with Esau. And that is why Paul postulates the question, is God unjust? See, he's throwing it into the realm of the judicial. Just follow the logic here. He raises this question, Paul does, because people do not believe that it's right, can I say, just for God to be selective like that. That's not right. We hear it all the time. They view God's decision as a matter of injustice or of not being fair. If the decision of God to love Jacob and hate Esau were based on favoritism or partiality in the judicial court, they would have a point. Because after all, God says himself that neither one of these boys had done anything good or bad to either commend them to God for any good that they might have done or condemn them before God for any evil they might have we're not in the area of activity yet. Nor may we play games with the text, as some have done, by suggesting that God foresaw that Esau would be immoral and godless. Hebrews 12, verse 16, that's the epitaph of his life. No one would like to have that epitaph written about him, but there it is. Well, God foresaw that. In Esau, And so he chose to love Jacob over Esau. Well, that would be to ignore the fact that God also foreknew that Jacob was going to be the biggest liar around, that he was a deceiver and was known for his deceptions, which in the justice of God is sufficient to condemn him to hell as any immorality that was committed by Esau. where do you find that? Revelation 21 verse 8. All liars, their part will be in the lake of fire along with all the immorals. Others still, and they're unwilling to say of God that He hates anyone. that's That's a strong term. We can't say that. So they go so far as to mess with the wording of the text, reading it this way. Jacob I loved, but Esau I loved less. You can't do that. These gymnastics are meant to preserve the integrity of God, but in the end they dishonor God because they put words in his mouth that he never said, or they postulate that God's choice of Jacob over Esau was based on good works versus bad works, though foreseen, which denies, verse 16, which categorically states that God's election does not depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. You've got to be careful. You can't mess with the text. You can't put words into God's mouth so you feel better about this. Very, And it's a strong word, this word that God hates. God actually hates people. Now, the principle we need to settle with in our minds is that election is firstly not a matter of justice. It is a matter of mercy. This means that to ask the question, is God unjust? In the scenario before us, loving Jacob, hating Esau, is to throw the decision of God into the judicial realm of right, wrong, partial, impartial, where none of these things apply. True, Paul asks the question, is God unjust? Verse 14, because that's what everyone thinks. Justice has to do with meeting out a righteous decision based upon performance. Keep my decrees and laws, for the man who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord, Leviticus 18, verse 5. That's a judicial decision. But the opposite also applies. The children rebelled against me. They did not follow my decrees. They were not careful to keep my laws, although a man who obeys them will, be, will live by them. And they desecrated my Sabbath. So I said I would pour out my wrath on them and spend my anger against them in the desert. Ezekiel 20 verse 21. Life for obedience, wrath for disobedience. This is justice in action, and it's based upon what one does in regard to God's law. But neither Jacob nor Esau have done anything, good or bad, to influence God's decision. Performance is not the issue. Obedience, disobedience is not the issue. These twin boys are both sinners in the womb, if not yet, by birth and actions, yet so by the nature that Rebekah and Isaac have passed on to them, so that both are undeserving of anything from God except judgment and damnation. If justice, now listen to me, if justice is the issue, then both Jacob and Esau are condemned. For Paul affirms, there is no unrighteous, not even one. All have turned away. There is no one who does good, not even one. Every mouth is silenced and the whole world is held accountable to God. Romans 3, verse 10 and following. Such is the verdict of God's court concerning sinners. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there are no sacrifice for sin is left. But only a fearful expectation of judgment, and of a raging fire, that will consume the enemies of God. For we know Him who said, it is mine to avenge, and I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God." Hebrews 10 verse 26 and following, I say then that people demonstrate great folly to say to God, or to think it to God, well, if God treats me just, that's all I want. Or again, my hope of salvation is that God will weigh my deeds, and when He does, He will see that my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. These are appeals folks, to the justice of God. And I would say to any sinner here today, don't ever appeal to the justice of God for your salvation. His justice says, all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. And that being so, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. Or again, do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction, Galatians 6, verse 7 and following. Have men obeyed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ which calls on them? Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus, Acts 3, verse 19 and 20. The promise of Jesus is this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away, for I have come down from heaven not to do the will of My own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise him up in the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 6, verse 37 and following. The Gospel says, look to Christ and live. Look and live. Look and live. Salvation is based upon the merit of Jesus Christ and His cross work for sinners. And this is how God can be merciful to people who deserve destruction. For this reason He had to be made like His brothers in every way. In order that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And that He might make atonement for the sins of the people. Hebrews 2 verse 17 with atonement, with propitiation in place, God explains His selection in loving Jacob and hating Esau. Here's how He explains it. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend upon man's desire or effort but on God's mercy. Verse 15 and 16 of our text. And obviously this applies to every sinner whom God saves, because if justice had its way, no one would be saved. The full penalty of the law would be meted out, and none would be exempt. Habakkuk's prayer should be our prayer. Here it is. Lord, I have heard of your fame and I stand in all of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day and in our time make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. Whew. Habakkuk 3 verse 2. Lord, that's, that's what I want you. That's why, how I want you to look upon me. My actions deserve your wrath. But in your wrath, look upon me in mercy. Peter explains mercy's transformation of sinners this way. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 1 Peter 2 verse 10. And James explains the outcome. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Wow. Election is firstly a matter of mercy. Then secondly, election affirms, affirms now God's justice. Mercy implies that while some receive grace, others receive the judgment that their sin deserves. We have this in our text, verse 17 and 18, for the scripture says of Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, therefore God has mercy on whom He wants to have mercy, and He hardens whom He wants to harden, as in the case of Pharaoh. Now, people ask the question, well, why isn't God merciful to all? Another one of those questions people throw out. The answer is, mercy has no meaning in a context of universal salvation. Mercy, by its very nature, is selective. Since mercy is not dispensed on merit, Since it cannot be commanded, since it cannot be earned, mercy is what it is, namely, the graciousness of God expressed in love towards the totally undeserving. Election and God's love go together. Let me read it. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. In accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one that he loves. Ephesians 1 verses 4 through 6. Now there are resultant accoutrements to this selection That are also grounded in love. Let me read some. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, did what? Made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It's by grace that you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, Ephesians 2. So mercy has these accoutrements faith, for one. What about repentance? When the people heard that Peter had gone to the household of Cornelius, a Gentile, a Roman centurion, on top of that, to preach the gospel, they were pretty furious because Jews didn't do that, you know. But after he explained how in preaching the word of God to the household of Cornelius, the Spirit of God came upon these Gentiles with the same power and evidence that had come upon the Jews at the day of Pentecost. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, God has granted even the Gentiles the repentance unto life. Acts 11 verse 18 faith is God's gift, repentance is God's gift. Paul says not everyone has faith, 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 2. So likewise Jesus pointed out that even the miraculous when seen by sinners does not necessarily change their hearts. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of His miracles had been performed because they did not <laughs> repent. Now, Acts or Matthew eleven verse twenty. Remember that the next time you begin to think, "Oh, if people would just see some miracles, then they'd come to know Christ." No, they wouldn't. These cities were swamped with miracles from Christ, but it didn't cause them to repent. Why? Faith and repentance are the gifts from God which accompany His love and mercy. There's nothing natural to the sinner. Is nothing natural in, to the sinner is responsible for his or her salvation. The sinful mind is hostile, I am reading scripture, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Well, faith pleases God, Hebrews tells us. Romans 8 verse 7 and 8. So, a nature change was predicted in the Old Testament as the essential ingredient to a sinner's ability to respond aright to the word of God. Here it is. I will give you a new heart. And I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone. I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. Ezekiel 36 Twenty-six and twenty. That's what was predicted that would have to take place. Thus life or regeneration precedes faith and repentance, which are the effects of salvation, not the progenitors of it. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad. Then they honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Get the concept? All who were appointed for eternal life believed. Acts 13, verse 46 through 48. Jesus taught the Spirit gives life. The flesh, <laughs> that counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. And he went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. John six sixty three and following. Now this mercy of God in action towards his chosen is laid over the bold backdrop of God's justice on the unbelieving. Like Pharaoh, whom God hardened all the more at every preaching of the word of God that Moses gave him. Didn't soften his heart, made his heart harder. And that's what happens. Mercy is the basis of God's electing And then lastly, mercy confirms God's justice in this. The recipients of mercy, you and me, have received the full justice of God for sin in our substitute, Jesus Christ. Do not, do not, do not entertain the notion that the saved get mercy from God But only the unbelieving receive judgment or justice. Every sin, every transgression, every wickedness you have ever thought or done or will think or will do has received the full sentence of the law of God promised in Romans 2 verse 5. Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of wrath when His righteous judgment will be reveal. I put it this way, God is not simply just when it comes to the lost, and merciful when it comes to the saved. Your sins are not ignored. Your sins are not swept under the carpet. Like so many who think those, in those ways. No, God poured out His full judgment for every one of your sins, for all of my sins, in our substitute. Jesus Christ, and there was no mitigation of the penalty because Jesus was His beloved Son. See, there again, we are dealing with what is right. Paul puts it this way, He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for all of us. Romans 8 verse 32. No mitigation. No, Oh well, you know, this is my Son. I, think, because he is my son, I need to go a little lenient on him. No, 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 that. that wouldn't be just. If he's going to stand in, let him stand in. If he's going to be our substitute, let him be our substitute. Isaiah tells us this way, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him by his wounds. We are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. And each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, verse 5 and 6. God does not simply set justice aside and substitute mercy. Instead, No, justice is fully satisfied and mercy is then granted to all on whom God sets his loving affection. The dynamic then changes. Here's the dynamic change. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. He's saying we could not render perfect obedience ourselves. God did it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin and sinful men in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be, listen to this, fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Romans 8, 1 through 4. God met the righteous requirements of the law concerning your sin and my sin if we're believers. What's the righteous requirements of the law? The soul that sins shall die. That's the righteous requirements. That's the justice of God. justice has been satisfied. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now while I am fully convinced that the number of God's elect is set and that Jesus' words are true, this is the will of Him who sent me that I shall lose none of all that He has given me but raise them up in the last day. John 6 verse 39. I believe it is equally true that sinners who plead with God for mercy will not be disappointed. God's sincere appeal is this. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him to our God for he will freely pardon. Isaiah 55 verse 7. There's a good definition of mercy, by the way. Men on death row in states that have capital punishment. And the governor says, I'm granting this murderer a pardon. You can't do that. He got to serve his sentence. He's got to be executed. Governor says, I'm the governor. I can have mercy on whom I want. I can pardon whom I want. The only trouble with that scenario, of course, is that justice may not have been fully satisfied. But in our substitute, justice is fully satisfied. And God can have mercy, and does have mercy, on all who will believe in Christ, who will accept Christ and his cross work for their death, for their punishment. Micah words it this way, who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. Micah 7 verse 18. That's our God. What's it going to be for you? Will mercy triumph over judgment or will wrath and judgment sweep you away? Paul says, as God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain for he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. And I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 1 and 2. You know, that's the gospel. And that's why we preach the gospel. We're telling sinners who are under the justice of God, the day of wrath is coming. You're not going to escape. He knows everything. He's got books. All your deeds are written there. And if you want justice, you're going to get it. And if you don't think you, your definition of justice is what you deserve, you're going to get exactly what your sins deserve. The gospel says it doesn't have to be that way. It does not have to end that way. If you will take what God has provided in His Son, Jesus, if you will believe what God has done for you in nailing His Son to death for your sins, you can say with Paul, we have not been appointed to wrath. But to mercy and mercy will triumph over judgment. It's not a question of justice. It's a question of election is a question of God being merciful. I don't want him to be nailing me to a cross, or putting me in the pit of fire. I'm glad to have Christ as my stand-in substitute. Lord, I pray for anyone here that doesn't know Jesus and they've been sitting on the fence for who knows how long. May this be the day that you find them and draw them unto yourself. May you grant them the repentance of their sins that they don't have and faith in Christ that they don't have. May you awaken their hearts that they may cry out and, and, and plead with you for mercy, not justice, but for mercy. And in getting mercy, In Christ, the justice aspect is taken care of. Wow, who could have thought of a plan of salvation like this? None but God. So all the religions of the world and all the unbelieving of the world are working real hard to try to please God, try to satisfy in their deeds a righteousness of their own so that they can plead with God that they're good people, not bad. God nailed His Son to a cross because men's sin were such that none could plead righteousness. You sent the perfect substitute. We thank You. Lord forgive us for our arrogance when we would ask questions like, is God unjust? Yeah, that's what we think. Even poor Job in his misery thought that at times. Lord, deliver us from that self-pity and from that attempt to question God, to analyze God, and worse, to call God into account as though He had to answer to us. May we understand this morning that we answer to Him, and we had best beyond His side of mercy. Lord, we plead, I plead for mercy on anyone here today that is outside of your grace. Lord, may this be the day that you find them. May this be the day that you grant them a new heart. Take out that stony heart and make their heart come alive to God. This you will do by the work of your spirit and this you will do for the glory of Jesus, your son and our savior, in whose name we pray, amen.